coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast. And now your host, Mike Florio. Okay, PFT PM posse. By popular demand, a reunion of the PA and Florio podcast from the 2016 season and also a reunion of something we do every Tuesday on the 9 to noon. Is that what you call your show, Paul Allen? 9 to noon, Love Covenant. Do you call it Love Covenant? What do you call it? Uh, it has many names, Michael. It's um, 9 to noon for Twitter purposes. Uh, it's the Love Covenant when uh, Loserville USA needs uh, some uplifting. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a show with many faces. What's Loserville USA? Uh, the the professional sports market where we um, honestly here we we have not had a champion since the Twins in '91, you know, and um, and all of the teams outside of the Twins since '91 have gotten close, you know, and including my team, the Vikings, several times NFC title game, but uh, nobody can seem to get over the hump. So we uh, while while blessed to have a core four four professional sports teams. It, uh, it gets a little loser villish when uh, when the uh, all the chips are in the middle of the proverbial table. Does that make you more likely or less likely to root for a team like the Washington Capitals, which is trying to to bust through as they did and deliver that first title for the D.C. area since 1991? Excellent question. Um, I am a Washington D.C. native, so. You know, I grew up in, in Anacostia in Washington, D.C., which uh, very close to the site of uh, the old RFK Stadium. So so I grew up a Capitals fan. Now, I mean, the, the, the older I get and the more attached to Minnesota sports I get, honestly, um, I couldn't care less who wins if it's not us. You know, and, and I've shared this with you before regarding Super Bowls. I've, I've never been to a Super Bowl. And, and I don't really have a desire to go to a Super Bowl, specifically a game, unless my team's playing in it. So I don't, I don't want to sound, you know, petty and or bitter. But, like, the Capitals winning it is cool. But the, the aftermath of, of the fun and joy Alexander Ovechkin had with the Stanley Cup for the weekend, I mean, I, I, I can draw a lot of joy out of that, you know, even being here in the cornfields. I don't know that it was really joy. At a certain oh. point, it just became exhausting. Like, no, it was unbelievable. Well, I, I've never seen, I've never seen a celebration of a championship last that many days. I don't know when he slept. I don't know when he was sober. There's a point where you just have to say to yourself, winning this thing and celebrating this achievement is a hell of a lot of work. Well, I, you know, I think the things that I really enjoyed about what he did, Michael, is I thought Friday it, it was kind of a cool spectacle when he's in left field at a Washington Nationals game, and he's in a suite by himself. I mean, there's like nobody around him, plays going on, and he's just holding up the cup and just like celebrating by himself. I thought that was surreal. The, the Saturday situation when he dove into a fountain in Georgetown – and and was uh was like doing the breaststroke and push-ups and and stuff like that I thought was funny but it what what made it unique to me is eventually a bunch of Washington Capitals fans joined him in the fountain and they all jumped up and down together and in this day and age with pro athletes and, and you you know as much about it as anybody nobody ever lets any fan in that closely and, and they're all super protective because of Twitter and social media to, to let your proverbial guard down like that, if only for 72 hours. Uh, it, it's so unique that, for me, uh, I drew joy from it. 
How did you end up in Minnesota? Um, first of all, it's an honor to be on the PFTPM podcast. Maybe uh, secondly, That's not my only question. to being part of the PFTPM podcast posse, uh, which I now follow on Twitter. Um, uh, for yeah, me, it's, I, it's, I landed it's, here in 1998. You know, I'm a um, I'm a racetrack announcer by trade. Started in 1993 in San Francisco after uh, five years of covering high school sports and um, horse racing for the Pasadena Star News in Southern California, where I went to high school and junior college. So, um, so Minnesota opened a racetrack called Canterbury Park in '95. I was uh, announcing races in San Francisco in '93. Uh, so '93 to '98, I did the complete Gypsy Trail. Uh, worked six and a half months in San Francisco, three and a half months in Shakopee, Minnesota, and filled in for a guy for a month and a half in Grand Island, Nebraska. I did that uh, that arduous Gypsy Trail for five years. Then um, uh, I did some uh, sports update work for Jesse the Body Ventura in 97 on KFAN. Uh, KFAN liked what they heard, so they got together with Canterbury and uh, put a deal together to bring me from San Francisco to here full-time. Wait, was Jesse the Body doing radio then? Yeah, he was doing radio, and, um, and he had a very popular radio show uh, in the time slot I occupy now. It, it was 10 in the morning until 1 in the afternoon, actually. And um, so I'm doing sports updates for Jesse. Jesse took a liking to me because we knew um, I used to go watch a lot of live music in San Francisco, and um, and we were friends with a lot of the same people. So Jesse really took a liking to me, put in a good word for me at KFAN. Then Jesse ran for governor in 98, and everybody thought he had no shot. So myself and my former co-host, Jeff Dubay, we filled in for him, and Jesse won. And he became governor of the state of Minnesota and myself and the former co-host kept the show. Did you, like, actively support his campaign and go around to yeah. events and introduce him and warm up the crowd and try to get him uh, elected? Did you do any of that? Well, we, we, he, he was um, championing his cause for several months, and then we, we filled in for him at the Minnesota State Fair, which is a massive fair with hundreds of thousands of people over, like, a 13-day span. And, you know, the, um, uh, the two gubernatorial challengers to him, Skip Humphrey and Norm Coleman, you know, they had booths by where we did our radio show. And they were like crickets at, at their booths. I mean, nobody was there. And then you would see Jesse's booth, and he always had a line of like 200 people. You know, so the, the, the wrestling phenomenon that was Jesse the Body Ventura and the fact that he had a radio show, I think popularity-wise, really helped him. Um, but I, I honestly, the night that they had the, the governor's race come to fruition, you know, he he held his his party at Canterbury Park, where I call races. So I was there right next to him when he was named the next governor of Minnesota. And and he cried, you know, when uh, when when the final tally came in. And and it was just a surreal moment, one that I'll never forget. Living that and witnessing that, such an unconventional candidate winning, did that make you think that the current president had a real shot sooner than maybe it otherwise would have? That's an excellent point. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the current president definitely fit, fits in to a certain extent with, um, with the way people look at things in this day and age. That's to a certain, certain extent, but it is very unconventional. And having seen what I saw here in 98 with Jesse— when Mr. Trump won, I, I was not surprised. 
So what made you realize that Minnesota was a place where you were going to put down roots? Because I'm assuming you've bounced around a good be a good bit before you you discover yourself living in Minnesota. Well, I mean, from a radio standpoint or a Vikings play-by-play standpoint, it's it's it honestly it's a story that never will happen to anybody again. I mean, I, I didn't go to college. I went to junior Pasadena City College for five years, and you know I was racetrack trained. And this K fan job is my first radio job, and calling games for Vikings for the Vikings. This is my first play-by-play job at any level. So I mean, to audition and and work for those jobs and then actually get them and hold them, you know, I think is very unique, specifically in in this day and age of Northwestern Missouri and and Syracuse trained broadcasters. So for me, you know, doing the radio show and and really in 2000, uh, the the Vikings wanted their product to go worldwide. And their current partner, their partner at that time was WCCO Radio, part of the CBS family, and they would not put Vikings games on their website. So the Vikings came to KFAN and said, you know, we, we want this to go worldwide. Will, will you broadcast our games on, on KFAN.com and Vikings.com? And that was all very new. So um, the boss came through the, um, came through the office and said, we need somebody to do play-by-play. Anybody want to do it? And I put my hand up. And I said, yeah, I'll do it, because I had never called any games. So via Cybercast, I called all of their 2000 season, did six games off TV, which, which was virtually impossible, and I made a million mistakes. But, but out of that, you know, calling games at Metrodome, at Silverdome, and a few other places, Lambeau Field, I had legitimate games on tape. So when the job opened up in 2001, I went for it. I got beat by Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. The local chapter of the NAACP dug some stuff up on him that he had said on his San Diego radio show. He got fired after one preseason game. I did a preseason game, and I thought I was in. One of the vice presidents told me, you're in. But previous owner, Red McCombs, was so pissed off at the people who hired Hacksaw in the first place. Um, Red came in and said, I'm making the decision on our next play-by-play guy now. So he hired his best friend's son, Terry Stembridge, who was doing Austin P baseball. And Terry did 2001. I did a Vikings pregame and fan line. Terry wasn't very good. And, um, and they let him go. Then they, they gave me the job in 02. And, you know, that really is a major reason that I stuck in Minnesota. So did you ever have to actually audition for it? Or you just were around and eventually the pendulum swung in your direction? Well, I think the, the 2000 season of doing the Cybercast um, opened the eyes of some people in the market at KFAN and with the Vikings that I can do it. And, you know, that I have a unique approach to it in that I had never called play-by-play. So I didn't go up and down the dial stealing other people's style. I kind of had my own, and, and they liked my energy level. So I think that truly was my audition. And, um, you know, the fact that I had, I had some games on tape you know, made me a legitimate candidate, even though I got beat the first time. You know, I, it, it's not like when I got beat, I ran 10th, I ran 2nd. And, um, and, but then after that, you know, when, they, when they hired the Austin P kid, um, you know, that was, that was kind of an inside job by the owner, so I was kind of next in line. 
So when you find out you're going to do this the first time on the Cybercast in 2000, how do you even begin to get yourself ready for it if you've never done it? Your only experience is horse racing, right? That's not transferable. How do you get yourself into the point where when it's time to go, you have any idea what you're going to do? Well, in serendipitous fashion, actually horse racing is transferable because given I've called 30,000 horse races and have done it for a quarter century, there are things that I would say in horse races, including a horse getting the lead at the top of the stretch by five lengths and opening up a winning lead and me blurting and he's loose. You know, so I would do that in horse races and, and a handful of other things. And then I transferred that to the NFL and people around the NFL were like, whoa, we, we've never heard that before. Normally it's 50, 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, and so on. But for me, it was like, you know, and, and so-and-so crosses the 30 and he is gone. Touchdown, Mike Florio, touchdown Vikings. And, and you know, the, the horse racing flair and some of the things I used there, I felt comfortable transferring to the NFL because it was unique. But not only was it unique, it was mine. Now, in 2000, I was fortunate enough to do Vikings fan line with former CBS TV guy, Irv Cross, uh, who was the, he was the athletics director at a small college in, in Minneapolis. So, you know, when I got this opportunity, the first thing I did is I went to Irv. And I said, you know, how do you put together a depth chart? Because you've been part of the NFL for many years. And, you, you know, you've worked with Brent Musburger and so on and so on. So he taught me how to put together a depth chart, and then I just did it. And, you know, the fact that it was kind of narrow casting, given it was a cyber cast, if I made mistakes, it's not like I was going to lose the job. So, you know, I, while I had pressure on me, it wasn't like job-losing type pressure. Who was with you when you did the cybercast? Uh, myriad people. One of our, uh, one of my current bosses at KFAN, Greg Swedberg, was the uh, first analyst. Uh, then longtime Vikings long snapper, uh, superstar Mike Morris. He did the majority of the games with me. And, um, and, yeah, we did a majority of that 2000 season together. How long until, once you got the gig in 02, how long until you knew that it was yours and you had to, you were able to quit worrying about week in and week out. Are they going to come with that big giant hook and drag me away? That's an excellent question because it took three years. I mean, in, in Red McCombs owns the team. And, you know, for better or for worse, one thing about Red is no matter what you did, he always kept you on your toes. It was kind of like Mike Zimmer with Case Keenum during the 2017 season where Case never completely felt comfortable, A, because Bradford was on the mend, but B, because Teddy came back. So Mike had, had a good way of always keeping Case on edge and getting, getting a top-level performance out of him. Red was very much like that with me. Um, I was very wild and very raw in the 2002 season, likewise for the 2003 season, even though I became more refined. Now, the final game of the 2003 season, even though most people remember it as a memorable call at the end of the Vikings' Arizona Cardinals game when I blurted no a couple of times because we, we got bounced from the playoffs, Red McCombs hated it. And, and I had to sweat the entire offseason wondering if I was coming back in 2004. You know, I, I've always been paid to do these games by K-Fan. So granted, K-Fan had a say in it, but if Red didn't want me, I'm out. So, you know, in, um, um, after 2002, 
we debut in 03 at Lambeau Field. And it's the first game at Lambeau, the renovated Lambeau Field, and the Vikings went in there and killed the Packers. Well, two days before that game, I sat down with two vice presidents, current marketing guy Steve LaCroix and former vice president Mike Kelly, and they, they said to me, Red's not comfortable with your progress. So, in essence, this is a very big season for you into 2003. So I felt I did a really good job in 03, but at the end of the 03, with the, the, the way we lost and knowing McCombs didn't necessarily dig it, you know, I kind of had to sweat that offseason into 04, and I kept the job in 04. I got better. Uh, Red eventually sold the team to the Wilfs. I've become very close with uh, Ziggy and Mark Wilfs, so I, I guess the rest is history. Why didn't Red like the call at the end of the Cardinals-Vikings? I mean, that was a year the Vikings unexpectedly made a run. Mike Tice was the coach. Randy Moss was still there and almost, almost made it to the playoffs. Needed that win week 17 at Arizona. It was the pass from Josh McCown to the receiver who I think went to Marshall. What was his name? Nathan Pohl. So what was it about that call that Red McCombs objected to? Well, I think it was a combination of things, honestly. You know, that year we were 6-0, and and we were beating everybody. I mean, it, it was a fantastic start. It, it was very, very roller coaster-ish with Mike Tice as the head coach. I mean, you know, people say that the best teams take on the identity of their coach, and Mike emotionally was a very up-and-down guy. You know, and I had been close with Mike since the mid-'90s through horse racing because he owned horses and was really into horse racing. And, you know, me being from D.C. and Maryland, and he was a quarterback at the University of Maryland, and I actually in the late 70s went and watched him play, Mike and I were quite close. So it was very easy working with him. Now, we're 6-0 and that year. Then we started losing to awful quarterbacks. We lost at Doug Flutie on a day Antonio Gates caught the first uh, touchdown of his career. We lost at Oakland to Rick Meyer. We lost at Soldier Field to uh, Chad Hutchinson. And then we lost to Josh McCown in the last game of the season. So it was a very emotional season. And I think from my standpoint, you know, I think Red probably looked at it like there was maybe a more subdued, um, cookie-cutter, professional way to handle it. Uh, from my standpoint, it was the I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was the only way I knew how to do it. Everybody nationwide was calling me after the game because they had never heard anything like it. So it's like it's like Red was wrong and the world was right, but he owns the team, so I have to adhere to what he thinks. How long did it take you once the ownership change happened to feel comfortable that the Wilfs weren't going to exercise their prerogative to get their own person, their own choice, their own whoever to come do the games? Uh, honestly, I never thought about it, never had a problem. Um, into, it, was, uh, it was into the 2006 season, so there was a lot of new. You know, we had new owners. Uh, Brad Childress was the new head coach, and I now had done it 02, 3, 4, and 5. So I felt very comfortable uh, with the way I did it, and, and I think they felt very comfortable with my allegiance to the team. You know, doing the radio show, despite being branded as cheerleader slash homer guy, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world for, for coming up on 17 years now to do a radio show where at times, of course, you're going to be critical of the team, specifically when we have seasons like 2011, you know, where we're 3-13 and 13 and coaches get fired and stuff like that, and, and then be, you know, super cheerleader guy for the team. 
So I think they appreciated the way I balanced that. They, they know what's in my heart, and they know that I, I never get personal with things. And, um, and, and they took a liking to me. So it's been an absolute treat working uh, with Mark and Ziggy Will uh, during this entire run. What's one thing that happened at any time during your tenure, other than the call from the Cardinals game, one thing that happened that had you sweating out whether or not you were going to continue? Um, honestly, nothing. I mean, there, there really has been nothing. I mean, you know, in, in balancing the radio show, the racetrack announcing duties, and Vikings play-by-play, uh, it can be an arduous schedule. You know, I, I think people like you and I are wired to work, and we're at our best when we are working. And, and I work a lot, and I love every single minute of it. Uh, every minute of it is not easy. But um, from, from the time the Wilfs took the team over in 06 through where, where we are now, even after the NFC title game, you know, where uh, in, in after 09, uh, where we lost to the Saints. And, you know, I was quite critical of the play calling at the end of regulation when Favre threw it to Tracy Porter. You know, I, I never heard a word from any of the vice presidents, the owners, anybody in marketing or media relations about my direction with that call because they 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 knew it came from my heart and it was a very intense impassioned moment one one honestly you can't make up so i guess if i get through that situation okay then then it's going to be okay the rest of the way and that's the infamous and excellent this is not detroit call and i've listened to that so many times it almost just kind of came out of you viscerally like you started very calmly and then as the realization settled in as to what happened you got cranked up a little bit more and more it's probably what the fans were going through in that moment that's probably why no one had a problem with it yeah and then that and you know that may be why i'm an outsider man i'm from washington dc uh went to high school and junior college and spent 15 years in california i'm a racetrack announcer by trade and this is a habit one of us kind of state so you know to have lasted in this market as long as i have and, and been as accepted as i am you know, it, it, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I am kind of the voice of the fan, not only when I call Vikings games, but when I do my 9 to noon radio show. And, you know, they, I feel the pain they feel because I want this team to win as much as I want anything in the world outside of, of happiness, good health, and success for my kids. So, you know, with, uh, with that situation, when it's tough for me to listen back to that call because I messed the call up and, and it bugs me even to this date. I mean, for me to say this is not Detroit, man, this is the Super Bowl. The the right way to say it, this is not a game against Detroit, man, this is to get to the Super Bowl. It it bugs me that I didn't phrase it the right way. Everybody understands what I meant. You know, but I had a deeply rooted belief in kicker Ryan Longwell in that situation, absolutely hitting a field goal from 53 yards. And I had seen him do it all of his career in 04, he daggered us twice, 34-31, when he kicked for Green Bay. He, had, he In his first game with the Vikings in 08, he hit a walk-off winner at FedEx, or, or was it was 06. He hit a walk-off winner in Childress's first game at FedEx Field, and I knew he could do it. And all Favre had to do on that bad ankle was run five yards, man. And, and I would have taken my chances with Longwell 10 out of 10 times. But um, it, it didn't work that way, and I freaked out. We know who benefited the most from that interception, who got who got off the hook because of that, the guy who cost them five yards right before that. Oh, now Fahu Tahi. Well, not him. I mean, it's coming out of a timeout, and there's 12 guys yeah. in the huddle. That's on Brad Childress. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that and that's right, and and that's another reason emotions were charged, you know, because um, but we it was out of a timeout, like you said, and it's just like who has an infraction like that in a moment like that with all of that at stake, and it's twelve men in the huddle. So I mean that that just further charged the moment. We later found out, and it took two and a half years to get to this point, two years and a couple of months, about the bounties and what the Saints were doing and the targeting of Brett Favre. Did you think during that game that something was going on, or was it just a game where the incentive is there to get to the Super Bowl and the Saints recognize that Brett Favre is Brett Favre, and if they want to outscore the Vikings, they need to beat the hell out of Brett Favre? Uh, it's a great question because, interestingly, the way they beat up Kurt Warner in the in the divisional round had me thinking that into the game. And I didn't, in watching back that game, I didn't have any inclination that they had a bounty or in any way were breaking the rules. But they beat the hell out of Kurt Warner in that divisional round game at the Superdome. So during our game, you know, the, the cliched bullets are flying and you don't really think of that. that. There were some very suspect calls during the course of the game, but I've seen a million of those during my career. There, there was one point in the NFC title game, 09, where I think it was Remy Adell, a defensive tackle, and it's either Bobby McCrary or Bobby McCray. I think it's Bobby McCrary. They, they, they did a high-low on Favre, and, and it was called. And, and uh, Morelli's staff called it. And at that moment, when we went to break, I looked at the analyst, Pete Bursich, and just kind of raised my eyebrow, and I kind of thought something <laughs> was up. And, um, and indeed it was. Definitely something was up. You know, then all this crap comes out about defensive coordinator Greg Williams over the years and, you know, some of the stuff like when he was having that meeting, and I can't remember where he was, maybe San Francisco, and he's talking about targeting a certain player because of an ACL. and. It was awful, and, and I lost all respect for him that day and, and honestly really never gained it back because of the way things were executed that day. But during the course of the game, I didn't think about it. After the game, I thought a lot about it. Which loss was harder for you to process? The day in New Orleans where the Vikings outplayed the Saints but couldn't outscore them or going to Philadelphia looking like right out of the gates the Vikings were going to blow the Eagles off the field and then having that flip and get blown off the field by Philadelphia? Oh, nine, not even close. I mean, 525 yards of offense, five turnovers, Brett Favre's on our team. I mean, I even said on the broadcast when we got the ball with like two minutes to go, that this is what all Vikings fans have dreamed of, even when he wore green and gold, is having Brett Favre on your team with the ball and a chance to drive down to the field to get to the Super Bowls right in front of us right now. You know, it, it was it's absolutely the most painful, surreal, memorable professional moment I've ever had in my life. In, in, into the Philly game, I liked our chances. I know we were favored in the game. After the Minneapolis miracle, you know, like the difference in seeing the Vikings with that week off into the Saints game 2017 seeing them get to practice Wednesday and Thursday and jump around and full of energy and full of excitement. You know, I knew they had a really good chance at home against the saints. The next week, everything was so subdued because everybody was so physically and mentally just beaten up after the end of a long regular season and such an unbelievably emotional finish to a game 
with Keenum hitting digs to, to win that game, that the practice was practices were very professional. They mostly were crisp, uh, and they were good up to the Eagles game, but it just had a different vibe because of what we had just gone through. Do you think there's anything to the idea that Mike Zimmer didn't do enough with the defense in the postseason to hide any tells or tendencies and otherwise avoid being exploited when you have 16 games of film that you can look at as a coaching staff, whether it's what the Saints did late second half or what the Eagles did most of the game. Do you think there's anything to the idea that maybe the Vikings didn't do enough self-scouting to avoid getting shredded during that five-and-a-half quarters of football? Well, there could be in the Eagles game. Now, in the second half of the Saints game, A, it's your guy Drew Brees, who is since HOF. B, he went no huddle 23 times in a row, or right around there, which makes it very difficult to to get your right guys in. And C, he started picking on second-year corner Mackenzie Alexander. And with all due respect, Mackenzie was overmatched in several situations. And that really played, played into the hands of the Saints. So that was a true football game where the Vikings killed them in the first half. Saints came running at them. And, uh, and then the Vikings got him at the wire. In the Eagles game, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to analyze. Now, I have watched the game back, and, you know, there are things that took place in that game that, honestly, I just did not think were capable against a Vikings defense. And I really have to credit the Eagles' offensive line, specifically Vitae, the left tackle, a fill-in left tackle. I mean, he, he pushed Everson Griffin into a stalemate, and – and a lot of it was one-on-one, and that's a battle the Vikings have to win. You know, and, and they just did some things with Nick Bowles that, honestly, I hadn't seen all season. You know, when Nick had that season with Chip Kelly where he went for like 28-3 and three or whatever it was, they, I, I just don't think, I don't think Reich and Peterson ran a lot of those plays during the season or during the playoffs against, um, uh, against Atlanta. Yet, I think they did run a fair amount of those plays against us. And perhaps it caught the Vikings off guard. They did things that caught some of our best players flat-footed. Um, so as the thing went on, when it started to steamroll, I just honestly don't think it, there was anything we could do to stop what we were being hit with. I mean, I remember seeing Harrison Smith flat-footed on that run-pass option deal, and more and more teams are planning to use that this year. How comforting are you the Vikings can come up with a way to deal with it? Because it seems like it takes advantage of a defense's aggression, that if the defense is swarming to the ball and they pause for that half second because they're not quite sure what's going to happen in that exchange, that it just bottles them all up and then they're they're stuck and they can't recover. Well, I think the serendipitous nature of the NFC title game for us defensively is I, I do believe that there will be things that change uh, with an already unbelievably good Vikings defense. And um I'm not exactly sure what there will be until we see this defense at home against San Francisco week one. But, you know, when, when we were all at the combine together, um, Mike Zimmer, the head coach, sat down on my radio show. And, you know, when we're talking about all these things, you know, he didn't – it wasn't a concession, but, but he did say that he's run a lot of the same things for a lot of years. And paraphrasing, there, there may need to be some tweaks to certain things on which he has relied for many years. And I do believe that there will be. You know, uh, one, one thing that's interesting with us now is we, we have a glut of very talented cornerbacks with Xavier Rhodes, Trey Waynes, Mackenzie Alexander, I think will be better than he was last year. Uh, you got first round rookie Mike Hughes. 
and you have this college free agent, Holton Hill, that they got from Texas, who I liked in rookie camp, and now after OTAs and a day of minicamp, I like him more. So I, I think he could be a factor. He's extremely talented. He was kicked off the Longhorns team for the final four games last year uh, because of some uh, pot-related situations. That's why he dropped out of the draft. He's long, and he's talented, and I think he has a good chance to make the team. So when it comes to changing things or having kind of the same look but with different personnel, I think a lot of it will involve the cornerbacks here and what they do with Anthony Barr to get more pass-rushing productivity out of him. I thought that Zimmer's routine with Case Keenum last year was kind of a Bill Parcells creation aimed at keeping Keenum from getting too comfortable with his role, from getting overly confident, thinking that Keenum would play better if he had some uncertainty and a chip on his shoulder. But then that ambivalence extended into the postseason. $18 million a year he got from Denver, $28 million a year paid to Kirk Cousins. Why ultimately did the Vikings decide not to give Keenum another chance to show that last year wasn't a fluke? Well, I, I agree with you with Zimmer's approach. Where I would disagree is that it worked. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, we, we went to FedEx Field middle of the season. Case throws four touchdowns. We win the game. Um, now, Case did throw two interceptions on successive passes in that game that put Washington back in the game when, honestly, we were killing them. But, um, you know, I think he was the first quarterback since Favre and or Culpepper to throw four touchdowns on the road. And the next week we have the L.A. Rams. Case's former team. Yet Zimmer hits the Monday press conference and will not commit to Case. So moments like that, motive, uh, Mike pushed all the right buttons with Case last year. Now, when you watch these games back via the All-22, and it happens with every quarterback, including Tom Brady, there, um, there was a lot of money left on the table last year with Case Keenum, uh, with, with, missed, with guys missed for touchdown passes. And one thing about Case where I'm just not sure, and certainly not speaking for the Vikings, but in, in, from my own study of watching things back, it seems like he would look for a guy and say Thielen or Diggs or Rudolph were covered, he would break the pocket. And, and at times it seemed like that took plays off schedule. And I just don't know how long you can sustain that game after game, season after season. And really, with all due respect to Case, because I'm very fond of Case, and he, he had an awesome season last year, Kirk Cousins is a more talented quarterback than Case Keenum. And with Adam Thielen, Stephon Diggs, and, and what they have now, including the, the coordinator, John DiFilippo, I, I think that they should do things eventually better with, with Cousins than what they did last year with Case. But was Case breaking the pocket because he – wanted to or did he do it because he had to because his mobility covered up a lot of deficiencies in the offensive line was he just bailing out because he was otherwise going to get creamed that's a very fair point because he he his houdini act was was remarkable and i've never seen anything like it i mean he ducked under guys he ran away from guys and largely because of the way case played the left tackle riley Reef finished the season allowing just one sack so, you know, Riley had a very good season. But, but if, you, if you, like, lay it out like this, your new left tackle only gave up one sack during the season, you'd be like, well, that has to be best left tackle in the NFL. And while Riley is, is incredibly good and he helps a lot, um, Case had a lot to do with that. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, there, there were a fair amount of times where he, he, would, he would see that first option closed and he would move. 
because he was comfortable doing that. And if you if you critically look back at the NFC title game, I think it's very apparent Philadelphia's approach was to keep Case Keenum in the pocket. And they believe if we keep this guy in the pocket, we're not going to lose the game because he is not going to make plays out of the pocket consistently to beat us. And I, I believe the Vikings feel Cousins not only is extremely good on the bootleg, not only can he move, but he is a true pocket guy with a better arm than Case Keenum. And the big similarity between Keenum and Cousins is that the Vikings were ambivalent about Keenum. Washington was ambivalent about Cousins. They didn't give him that mantle of leadership that every quarterback needs. Not every quarterback is John Wayne. He needs the organization to pay him like a leader so the players in the locker room realize he's the leader and to stick up for him when people are criticizing him and say good things about him, not bad things about him, and act like they want him around. And I think the Vikings will do that. The contract speaks for itself. The question becomes, can Cousins perform better to make it worth the difference, $10 million a year? especially when Case Keenum set the bar pretty high, Final Four. It's almost like if you don't get back to the Final Four, it was a mistake letting Keenum go and signing Cousins. Um, I I understand what you're saying. Um, I honestly believe we are better now than we were last year with Cousins and the return of Dalvin Cook and the defense heading into its fifth year led by Mike Zimmer and and the addition of Mike Hughes and – just overall, I think it's a better team. We also we also have a rookie tight end named Tyler Conklin, who I don't think many people have heard of, but I think they're going to like him during the season. You know, the uh, the kicker situation may be upgraded if they go with uh, the rookie Daniel Carlson from Auburn, whose leg is absolutely stronger than Kai Forbath. I, I don't know if he's going to be clutch like Kai, but I think he's going to get a fair sh- a shot to win that game. You know, K saved the season. That's the only way to look at it. I mean, when you lose Bradford and Cook and you have this excellent this excellent defense and an upgraded offensive line with Riley Reef and Mike Remmers when he played, if you don't have a quarterback, the whole thing's ruined. And and K saved the season. So you're right. I mean, Kirk Cousins jumps into a spot where the expectation level is going to be incredibly high. He's not intimidated by it. He's absolutely a scholar of the game and they're extremely high on him. Now, I do believe with the Vikings offense, patience is going to be needed early in the season. You know, it's not like we're going to have a string of games with 175 yards and zero touchdowns, but you do have a new quarterback and a new offensive coordinator. So that all needs to meld, which it's doing now at mandatory minicamp, but training camp and preseason, incredibly important for this coordinator and this quarterback. Well, I also think maybe a tougher schedule, higher expectations, and also healthy Aaron Rodgers. And I think that factor, Paul, gets overlooked more than anything else. That if Aaron Rodgers doesn't suffer the broken collarbone on a play that was not a dirty hit from Anthony Barr, Rodgers deliberately held onto the ball longer to give Martellus Bennett more time to get open so he could run with the ball, and of course he dropped it. But if Rodgers plays all year, I don't think the Vikings win the division, and they may not even make the playoffs. And now if Rodgers is healthy and motivated this year, that's going to make it harder for Minnesota to get back to do what they did in 2017. Yeah, I can't say that. I mean, I can say that Green Bay and the Vikings might have hit the wire together in the division. And I think Aaron Rodgers is the best overall quarterback in the NFL. So, I mean, my, my level of respect for him is immense. Obviously, it makes a big difference. But outside of uh, – we, we could have beaten Green Bay at U.S. Bank Stadium with Aaron. So let's say we lose at Lambeau. 
okay, that, that you know, we still would have won 12 games. You know, so that you're, you're still going to make the playoffs with that record. Maybe you don't have a home game in the divisional round, or maybe you have to play, or maybe you have to play wild card weekend. Who knows? But this Vikings defense was historically good in a lot of different categories. And, you know, you got to remember the Vikings did lose Bradford and Dalvin Cook. And that's in no way to say that equals losing Aaron Rodgers, but it's still a hefty price to pay and, and something significant to overcome. I got some questions for you from the PFTPM posse, which you have officially joined. They're very happy about that. They're a very passionate bunch. Sean Alvashire wants to know how serious the Vikings were about leaving Minnesota if the public financing hadn't come through for the stadium. Um, I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I obviously, obviously there were opportunities in Los Angeles and subsequently Las Vegas. And, um, you know, with as, as important as stadiums are in the NFL in this day and age and overall revenue, you know, I, I think it definitely could have happened. Uh, I'm just happy we got U.S. Bank Stadium, you know, where we play our games now. What's the best facet of that new stadium that people don't know about? Mm, I, I think every seat is a good seat. You know, there are a lot of them, and they're all good. Um, the lighting in there because of the uh, – the pivoting doors on the west uh, west side of the stadium, spectacular. The concourses are incredibly wide. The food options are terrific. Uh, there's a really cool plaza on the west side, uh, which has live music and a very festive pregame atmosphere. It, it's a gem of the stadium. And, you know, everybody who took in Super Bowl 52 at U.S. Bank Stadium, I mean, I, I have not heard one person complain about the amenities or the accommodations. No, the complaint was that the Vikings were one game away from getting there, and it was just a weird vibe the whole week. And I can't imagine, even though the Vikings didn't make it, there were a lot of Vikings fans all week long at the Mall of America. I can't imagine how raucous that scene would have been if the Vikings actually were playing in the game. Man, I hated it. I mean, I saw you on Radio Row five days, and, you know, I had a great time on Radio Row, and Mall of America did a really good job with Radio Row, and you know, it was my first radio row before a Super Bowl. It, uh, it was great meeting all the luminaries that I met, and you know, joining you and Chris on uh, on the PFT radio show and having you on my show. I loved it, but it was painful. I mean, it it if we had lost a spine tingler to the Eagles and like had our aortas smashed like we did after '09, it, it would have been almost impossible to be there. Uh, the fact that we got killed. And, um, you know, and, and we had to move on to the off season. And it was a newsy week, too. I mean, we're at Radio Row. Kirk Cousins is walking around. You know, I happen to think the Vikings may be interested in him, in him because he's a free agent. And the, uh, the, the Redskins trade for Alex Smith. A day Kirk Cousins actually is at Mall of America. So that, that was a unique situation. Well, and that was a key part of the courtship, not from the team's perspective, but from Cousins' perspective. He was, he was in town, and he was able to do a little reconnoitering to see if he and his family would be happy in Minnesota. So it ended up being a big piece of what ultimately happened in early March. Victor the Viking, the official <laughs> Twitter account of the mascot, he doesn't have a question, but says, tell Paul I say hi. Well, with Victor the Viking, a couple of things here. A... I have no idea how he types with those big, puffy, foamy fingers. And secondly, one of my great bits with Victor when I see him like at games and stuff like that is I'll roll up to him in front of people and I'll whip out $500 and I'll go, come on, $500, just say one word. All you have to do is say one word. And he's, he never bites. Whatever happened to Ragnar? 
That's a great question. He kind of rode his Harley into the sunset, didn't he? Wouldn't that have been a great gig? We were talking about the best gigs in football today, and my third-round pick in the draft that we did was to be Ragnar with the chopper that you ride indoors at Vikings <laughs> games. Yeah, he was. Uh, he could be distracting to the adversary, too. Uh, Ragnar's a local guy. I think he either was a teacher or an administrator at a local high school. Feels like it was Minnetonka High School, maybe Wyzetta. Um, and, and I'd known him for years. Can't remember his name, though. But, um, but great guy. Fit in with the, uh, uh, you know, with the, the myth-like nature of the Norsemen and the Vikings and stuff like that. But um, uh, there was some flim-flam at the end. Uh, they decided to go uh, in a different direction. And here comes my main man, Victor. So there was not Victor and Ragnar at the same time. There were not two different takes on the mascot. It was Ragnar is the human mascot, and then see you, Ragnar. We're going to put a guy in a suit. What do I look like, the Philly fanatic? I'm not an I'm not an expert on mascots. I got no idea. You're there to witness all of it. I'm just asking you. You've got access to it. I thought maybe you'd have a good behind the scenes mascot story. Maybe some scandal that Ragnar got himself into. I'm maybe observant, some, like but, a Game um, of Thrones, not, where Victor uh, I'm not up to speed on my uh, my mascot history. Victor set him up. Victor Victor <laughs> framed him for something, and Victor got the gig. Yeah, well, that you know, assuming I would know who Victor the Viking is, which I'm not going to confirm or deny. I would imagine more goes into that job than just running around in the uh, Victor the Viking costume. The PFTPM Posse Twitter account wants. Your best story involving me. I don't think you have a good story involving me. Oh, I got two. Well, I mean, the, the, I would have three. I mean, given you've joined my weekly radio show for well over a decade now, uh, the fact that I win the majority of arguments with you, including the one we had today on Terrell Owens, that probably would be number one. Right behind that is in, in either seeing like videos of you or listening to you or whatever, for whatever the reason, I thought you were like 5'8". And I, I just thought you were just a really short guy. So I, I would always tease you about, you know, hey, if you ever come to a Vikings game, we'll have a chair for you and I'll throw a couple of phone books on it so you can actually sit up and see the game in your high chair. And then when I met you at, what's the name of the Jets and Giants new stadium, MetLife, something like that? MetLife Stadium. Yeah. So when I actually met you at MetLife, when we had that rain, we had that weather delay on Monday Night Football 2010. I was helping you, you fill. What? I was helping you fill. I was helping you fill the airwaves. I sat in let, with you and let, Rick Spielman. You stepped on my touchdown call just like Versich in the Minneapolis Miracle. Exactly. So the second, the second uh, cool story, you walked into the booth like some mafioso from Jamaica, Queens, standing like six feet, six one. You were this imposing figure in this $5,000 Gucci suit. And I, I felt like I either had to clean your feet or kiss your hand because you were like a Don. So you were taller than I thought and more imposing. But then the third part of it, we had, a, we had like a 90-minute weather delay, and I threw you on the radio, and you and general manager Rick Spielman had like the coolest 30-minute conversation on the Vikings radio network, and I just sat back and like basked in the glory and collected the paycheck. Uh, yeah, I got I got uh, no paycheck for that night, but it was worth the satisfaction because when we met, and I knew, because I had told you, you should have known this was coming. I told you, 
you think I'm short. You're going to find out when we meet that I'm not. And the look in your eyes was classic law of the jungle, the alpha <laughs> taking over the beta. You, I've seen that look in my dog's eyes, my new puppy, because we're trying to show that we're the alphas of the household. And when we did the handshake, I could just see it in your eyes. Your eyebrow just kind of receded, and yeah. that was it. I was in charge of the booth that night. That's why I stepped on your call, not because I wanted to, but because I could. The, the only other time in my Vikings Radio Network career where I was that moved by being surprised was back in 2004. I believe it was 04. Now, there was a movie called Passion of the Christ, which happens to be my all-time favorite movie. Mel Gibson produced and directed it, and Christ was played by an individual named Jim Caviezel. Do you know that name, Jim yes. Caviezel? Yes. Okay, Jim Caviezel is our former offensive coordinator, Scott Linehan's brother-in-law, all right? Caviezel married Linehan's sister. So I see Passion of the Christ uh, on a Friday. We play at home that Sunday against the Lions at Metrodome, and I walk into the locker room, and Jim Caviezel is in the locker room. Now, this is after Passion of the Christ that Friday, I mean, moved me so much that I, I just, it's like, I, I must have seen that movie 30 times by now. So there's Caviezel. And I walk, I get the courage to walk up to him. And I say, and then I get equipment guy, Dennis Ryan, he's next to us. And I, and I say, Mr. Caviezel, I'm a big fan of yours. Dennis, can I get a towel, please? Jim, I'm going to clean your feet just in case. And that, that was like a moment I'll never forget, including uh, the two, uh, 2010 uh, New Jersey moment when I met you. Wait, so did he let you clean his feet? He laughed. I got down there with a towel, um, and I cleaned his loafers just in case. All right. I didn't know that one. And you know what? I've never watched that movie. Uh, it's a very powerful moving movie. It's not for everybody. It has some gory moments, but uh, you know what? Uh, my Lord and Savior did not have an easy path, and I needed to see it. At Reverend Markworth, on that same vein, he wants your best horse racing story. Um, wow, God, I've called 30,000 races, Mike. I mean... There isn't one that stands out? Well, there, I mean, there was a horse in San Francisco named Soft Hits, like Christopher Cross or, you know, some of those soft... Air Supply. Hits. Uh, air supply, perfect soft hits. Uh, well, soft hits came bouncing out of the gate. Uh, that That's one that I'll never forget. Um, there was a horse spelled, the name was spelled O-W-I-S-E-O-N-E um, early in my career, and I didn't look at it closely enough, and I called it Oisioni uh, the entire race when clearly it was a wise one. Um there is a uh, there's a horse that races at Canterbury now that um, an owner breeder named after one of my Vikings calls. Uh, his name is AP is loose. And when he wins, I have a really good time with that horse in the stretch. So I think those uh, probably would go to the top of the list. Who farted the all time best horse racing name? Well, there actually is a quarter horse running right now these days who won a race at Remington Park in Oklahoma City two weeks ago. And if you haven't seen it online, you, you can Google it. I have no idea how the name got by the naming board. It's, it's named B-O-F-A-D-E-E-Z-N-U-T-Z. 
and the announcer actually has to say, both of these nuts. Now, wait, is there like a, a is there a censor that screens the name of the horse for potential inappropriateity? Yeah, supposedly there is. And I, I just I, I haven't looked closely enough at like the owner or the breeding. Maybe there's something BOFA BOFA tied up into this whole thing. But somehow they let a name BOFA D's nuts get through the screening process. And honestly, I'm hoping the horse runs at Canterbury so uh, so I can dangle that call in front of the fans. I guess there's no I guess there's no like copyright issue because there was the horse named Gronkowski. They just name him Gronkowski. It's not like they have to pay Gronkowski to do it. You can name a horse whatever you want, I guess, as long as the censor lets it through. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and that actually would be a brilliant approach to doing things. I, and and between you and I, we've talked about it at Canterbury about, you know, because I own three horses. Now, the horses that I own, I I my myself and my partners have claimed, so we didn't get a chance to name them. But if you're if you want to get like Dalvin Cook, Kirk Cousins, Everson Griffin, Daniel Hunter, Mike Zimmer, whomever involved in the game, just breed a horse and name it Dalvin Cook, and then go to Dalvin Cook and say, "Hey, this uh, this horse has your name. Would you like to buy into the partnership?" And then it could get pe- they could get prominent people more closely involved in horse ownership. I Don't think it'd think be a brilliant idea. Out? Nobody ever does it. Don't they figure it out? I mean, they're, surely they're going to figure it out. Right, but played. how do you how do you copyright your name? Well, you don't. But I'm saying from the standpoint of, hey, I've got this horse named after you. Would you like to buy a piece of it? I mean, the vanity thing only gets you so far. Sooner or later, people are going to be like, yeah, they're just doing this to get people to buy shares of horses. Right, but it worked with Gronkowski. I mean, they named that horse Gronkowski. Approached Rob. He bought into the horse. He was at the Belmont sweating out that second place finish. So I mean, hey, it worked there. The Real Forno wants to know what's your favorite Vikings game that you ever called, other than the Minneapolis Miracle, assuming that that's number one. Yeah, Miracle goes to number one uh, because it was a supercharged atmosphere. We looked great for part of the game. Then there was an anxiety attack with what Breeze was doing to us in the second half, and then then the Miracle. I mean, you know, with fans trying to climb into the booth, which, which was unbelievable, just to give us high fives. Uh, before that, probably, I think it was week 309, Mike Singletary brought uh, the 49ers into the Metrodome, led by Sean Hill. And, you know, we knew we were on to something good that year with Brett Favre, but they, they, it was a very physical Niners team. We were losing. Favre had the ball, found Greg Lewis back right of the end zone. Uh, that, that was a super memorable victory for me. And that catch by Greg Lewis, underrated, amazing, walking the tightrope oh. at the back of the end zone, and it was a rope like 40 yards in the air from yeah. Favre to Lewis, and somehow he caught that thing. He doesn't get enough credit for making that catch. I agree, and he got his feet down. And, you know, a couple of years ago, he was wide receivers coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. When we when we went to Philadelphia, they beat up Radford, and we lost the game. Um, and Greg and I, you know, Greg, Greg and I were close when he was here, if only in truncated fashion. But, you know, we looked back at that moment and relived that moment with each other and just kind of had a laugh. Aaron 3PO wants to know your greatest Randy Moss story or your greatest Randy Moss nightmare. Um, the the nightmare pro- would be one of two things. Um, Ran- Randy could be very moody. And, um, you know, when uh, when I'm with the Vikings on the road, I ride on bus four. And, you know, they're, um, when, when we have sponsors go on trips, they will be either on bus four or five. For whatever the reason, Randy, after a loss, decided he wanted to ride on the same bus that we rode on. 
and he got frustrated at some sponsors that they were sitting in a seat that he wanted to sit in. I thought it was embarrassing. Um, uh, at the end of the um, at the end of the '04 season, we're at FedEx Field. We're losing. Randy's frustrated. Walks off the field before the game's over. I mean, it, it was it was miserable the fact that he did that. Um, and then we had to sweat a Carolina New Orleans John Casey 65 yard field goal just to get into the playoffs. Then the week after that, we go to Lambeau and we kill Green Bay. But Randy Randy leaving leaving the game early was frustrating. Uh, my most positive, uh, memorable Randy Moss moment uh, took place in my very first year doing Vikings football, 2002. Uh, Randy was in an awful mood after Brad Johnson threw for five touchdowns against us, and that the freaking pirate ship was firing so much you you would think you were Johnny Depp in Pirates of Caribbean and Pirates of the Caribbean. And Randy was in a horrible mood. He was just in an awful mood after the game, very cantankerous, walks out to where the buses are, um, has an uncomfortable moment with a fan who wanted an autograph, and, and Randy shouted some profanities at him, very uncomfortable. And then there's a group of 20 kids. They're part of a charity. And Randy gets those kids, brings them underneath the rope next to our buses, puts them in a circle, and walks around basically saying, what do you want, autographs? pictures. Uh, do you want me to give you a hat? What do you want? And it was one of the kindest gestures that I've ever seen from a Vikings player to kids, specifically given 15 minutes earlier, I knew Randy was just in a horrible mood. When you did the Cybercast in 2000, were you at the old Meadowlands for the debacle against the Giants in the NFC Championship game? Yes, I was there uh, for K-Fan and also doing some sideline TV work for uh, Fox 9. I did not call that game, uh, but I was in the press box, and that game got so out of hand. I think the Westwood One broadcast was Howard David on play-by-play, and Boomer Esiason was the analyst. The game got so out of hand. Late in the fourth quarter, I look into the Westwood One booth, and Boomer Esiason has his kids on his lap and one of them has the headphones on, and I swear to God they were talking into the microphone during the game because that the 41 the, Donut just got so laughable. Wasn't there something before that game about Randy Moss worrying about, like, friends of his having yeah. access to the side? So, what, what happened before the game that had Randy Moss in, 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 a, in a tizzy? Um, well, Randy had a large conglomerate of people at the game, and I don't think they had, they had proper credentials to get to the sidelines. So I think Randy freaked out that his his friends or family members could not get on the sidelines. And I don't think it was a 30 or 45 second thing. I think it lingered during pregame warmups. And uh, it was just it was just an, a bad moment on what turned out to be um, a historically bad day. Remember the allegation that the Vikings coach communication system was somehow tapped into that they yeah there was what 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 was the, what was the claim and was there anything yeah, it to was, it um it was somehow well i mean it was just it was it was interesting in that the giants offense picked up on every single nuance and thing the vikings defense brought i mean every single thing was picked up and that that leads to 41 zilch so after the game, I don't know if it, if it was proven out, if it was concrete or whatever, but um, suppose you know there there was a rumor bouncing around that the Giants had access to the Vikings plays and access to the Vikings play calls. 
But did you think that based upon what you saw? I mean, we, we had the 2009 incident where when it what happened came out, you're like, yeah, yeah, that happened. They were going after Brett Favre. Did you think at the time something fishy was happening, or was it just one of those days where everything went wrong that could go wrong? No, I had no idea. I, I had no idea during the game. It's just we were just getting killed. All right, Paul. Well, this has been excellent. There's one more point that I want to raise with you before I let you go. It's been a full mm-hmm. hour, and I appreciate it. You know, there's been a thing now, a trend now, with people celebrating championships and big wins by eating horse crap. And since you call horse races, can you make a commitment now that if the Vikings were to win Super Bowl 53, there would be consumption of horse manure by you? So you're telling me, after dealing with your anxiety attacks you give me weekly on my 9 to noon show, that's not eating horse crap. There's actually, like, more of that version. Well, wait a minute. If that's the case, then you already have developed a taste for horse crap, so you're good to go because you keep no, asking me to come back. No, I think if the back. Vikings win the Super Bowl, I will get uh, some form of Vikings tattoo on one of my butt cheeks. Oh, no, wait, that's you who's going to do that. So i got to no. come up with my own bed. Now, wait a minute. Am I the one that texts you every Monday saying, can I come on your show tomorrow, or are you the one who texts me saying, will you come on my show tomorrow? I text you every week because I'm an organized, responsible, squared-away human being. Remember when I said I'd get a Blair Walsh tattoo if he made 20 straight kicks? Yes. And how many did he get to? Five? Uh, what do I look like, Jan Stenerud? I'm not why an expert they, on hey, kicker why did history. They hang on to, why did they hang on to him for so long? Um, well, Blair was very talented. I mean, in, in 2012, Blair had a, a fantastic season when he was a rookie. You know, and Blair also had a lot of walk-off winners. Now, when he missed that kick at TCF Bank Stadium against Seattle, I mean, I think it was clear here or in Seattle he was never the same guy. I like Blair. I like Blair as a guy. Uh, I used to watch NBA playoff games at his house in Eden Prairie because he's a big Miami Heat guy. So I wish nothing but uh, good things for Blair Walsh. Hopefully he gets back into the game. Wasn't that really the worst moment, though, thinking of all the things you've experienced in your time with the Vikings? That Now, since you didn't grow up in Minnesota, maybe you didn't appreciate it, but playing a playoff game outdoors like the old days in the 70s, that clear blue sky, even though it was bitterly cold, the last game ever to be played outdoors by the Vikings in Minnesota, and if at a minimum for decades, if ever again it happens, and it's all set up to topple the... Seattle Seahawks and end their run of two straight Super Bowl appearances and it's all happening it's all coming together and he misses that 26 27 yard field goal. You know goal. I think I think that was the most anger filled moment where like losing the NFC title game after 09 that was a stunner that was a head spinner uh the way things worked out against the Eagles that that was just sadness that was just this is freaking ridiculous are you kidding me this just happened this way that that was anger. I mean, it, it when I went into that locker room, there there were legitimately angry people at the way that thing ended, um, and and so that was an anger filled situation, you know. But but it was it was a wild card playoff game, and you know there uh, there there are more devastating losses than that. Did you flush a toilet while I was giving you that explanation? No, my my fifteen uh, year old daughter closed my sliding glass door. Oh well, it sounded like you were flushing the toilet. No, that's just the uh, proper way to end an interview like this, which has been fantastic all the way until the end uh, when you had to make it a commitment to excrement. So you're saying you'll do it? What, flush the toilet for you? No, Wait, that you will. That there, that there will be because it's the perfect tie-in. No, I'm not Canterbury eating horse Park crap. and it okay, all comes I'll, together. I, I, will, I, will, I will swim in a pond 
in January, even though it'll be ice, like Alexander Ovechkin. I will jump around with fans. I will potentially get a tattoo, but eating horse crap is one thing I never, ever, ever will do. Commit to getting the tattoo. No, I don't want to get a tattoo. Why do, why, why do I want to slap a tattoo on, on this body? Because this it would a, commemorate uh, the a, fact that the Vikings a, finally won the Super Bowl. I'm a highly, uh, highly trained, uh, physically active, uh, gifted 52-year-old man. Why do I want to put a tattoo on this body? <laughs> when will you be 53? January 6th of 2019. I just turned 53 and you didn't wish me happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday to you. All right, I'll take that. Paul, thank you. You gave me a full hour of your time. It makes up for, what, four or five weeks of when I do your show. Now we're even for another four or five weeks. We'll bring you back at some point. I'm sure the PFTPM posse will be very happy with this conversation, and I hope I irritated you as much as I do every Tuesday. I look forward to talking to you next Tuesday. Well, thank I you. know you um, I know you get really uncomfortable with compliments, so plug your ears. Uh, I know you and I mess around a lot. Uh, but seriously, you are great at what you do. You're not good. You're great. You're great on TV. You're great on radio. You're great at profootballtalk.com. And it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to work with you every week and follow your work and your staff's work at profootballtalk.com. Thank you for the opportunity and have a blessed day. Thank you, Paul. He stepped on my call on the way out, but I'll take it. And really, all those things he just said, how could it be any tougher to eat horse shit after saying all those things? Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll do this again on Wednesday. This has been the Tuesday edition of the PFTPM podcast. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.